This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a cheerful and celebratory life. Just a quick reminder before we get started, you can still download the No Recipe Required Cheat Sheet, which is just a list, two pages of like meals you can make without needing cookbooks or recipes. Healthy, easy to make from ingredients you probably have at home, and you don't have to fuss about it. If those two pages would be helpful for you, you can grab them at plantyourself.com slash cheat, all lowercase c-h-e-a-t. And now to today's podcast. My guest is Lee Slanimsky. I was introduced to him by our mutual friend Gene Stone, who is an accomplished author, both of many of his own books and also as a collaborator with people like Dr. Michael Greger, Rip Esselstyn, and others. Gene has been very generous with me, hooking me up with people to have on the podcast, and today's guest, Lee Slanimsky, is one of these people. Lee is a longtime practitioner of the dark art of managing a hedge fund, and unlike a lot of people in the hedge fund business, Lee is public about what goes on, he's straightforward, and he has a very, very powerful ethical agenda. He's not in this just to enrich himself and his clients, but to use the power of these hedge funds to change the world. And it turns out these hedge funds have an awful lot of power, and most of it is dark and secret. And it was amazing to hear some of the stories and to hear about the structure of this, what has become the largest financial arm of the American and the global economy, even though... It's completely separate from the stock market, where you and I can just take a few bucks and go invest. If you want to be in hedge funds, you need a lot of money. You need to know people. You need certain documents. You need access. And this is the money that controls our politics and controls our world. And Lee is an expert at how to use that money as leverage to change the world. For example, we talked about for animal rights and ending how to use hedge funds to end factory farming. He co-founded a hedge fund that is the only majority-owned hedge fund by Native Americans in the country. So we talk a lot about the inner workings of finance, and since I consider myself to be something of a financial simpleton, I ask a lot of questions that I hope um, will help you as well to begin to decode and understand this world. We also get into the power of being an investor in the, even in publicly traded companies and why being an investor and who to email within the company if you're concerned about some of their ethical practices, how you can do that and might be much more effective than if you're just a consumer. And finally, Lee is also an accomplished poet, like, like top class, not just like he writes a couple of poems every month in his spare time. He has several books of published poetry. They're highly regarded and when I, I pushed on whether he's a renaissance man, Lee assures me he's not. He's simply got two very, very different interests, finance and poetry. But he's a fascinating guy. He's got lots of tales from the trenches. And I think his advice can help all of us be more effective in our own advocacy and activism in this world. So without further ado, Lee Slanimsky, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we met through a mutual friend, Gene Stone, who's a, a prolific uh, author, including a, a plant-based author and a, and a 
past guest on this podcast, and he kind of warned me that you have an incredible story with lots and lots of different parts and pieces to it. Um, so let's let's begin just with uh, kind of you know your background, the elevator speech of uh, of where you come from and uh, how you got to uh, where you are now. Right. Well, uh, I have strands running through my life that I'd say go back to the 1960s when I was um, very well, when I was in junior high school, high school, et cetera. Uh, and there's a kind of um, one of my parents, my father uh, had worked on Wall Street and was no longer working there when when I was growing up, but it certainly started a fascination with it. He, he had gotten his first job straight out of high school in August of 1929, which was really interesting timing in terms of the October crash. So he, he had a lot of, uh, I was exposed to a lot of stock, stock market lore, L-O-R-E, and my uh, my mother was very literary, was very literary, and um, so I had sort of twin interests in uh, business and and writing from a very young age, and uh, my mother kind of brought it together for me, I think around 1967, when she said, you know, there is a well-known poet who's also a businessman, and that turned out to have been Wallace Stevens, who's a poet I much admire and had a pretty big influence on me, and so that kind of fast-forwards uh, fast forwards to um, 2017, if you want to go that fast, where... Um, Two years ago, I, I've been running um, a sort of uh, non-socially conscious hedge fund called Ocean Partners LP uh, since 1999. And two years ago, um, we created what's called a side pocket, which is a part of the fund legally, but focuses on issues related to uh, humane treatment of animals and uh, specifically opposes factory farming or, in fact, opposes the killing of animals for any reason other than self-defense, and, um, you know, that's now going into its third year, and I continue to have the good fortune to um, publish books of poems uh, with my publisher, Spite and Dival Press, which is located in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I have another one now uh, called Lion, Nat, G-N-A-T, coming out um, sometime in the second half of this year, so... I left out a lot of details in between, but um, I have to say that that kind of explains why I'm a stock trading poet. <laughs> so right, there's a, there, yeah, well, there's there's a lot to unpack in there. Um, so let's let's start with the uh, the humane treatment of animals. So when when did you get interested in in animal welfare in the first place? So actually, when I was ten years old and spending the summer in upstate New York in uh, Delaware County. I, I was um, bitten by an insect that's never been uh, identified, but m maybe a wasp, maybe a spider, and I had an allergic reaction and, uh, you know, a badly swollen head and had to be hospitalized and all that. And uh, actually, initially, I became very angry at the animal world from that incident, but uh, within that same year, which I believe was my first year at junior high school, I started, you know, thinking more about how animals were treated. It just sort of brought the subject to me, and I pretty quickly reached the conclusion that animals were actually treated really badly um, and had an idea for a novel, which unfortunately I've never written, called The Animal's Revolt. And so um, then when I moved on to my college years, I had a uh, romantic relationship with a 
person who was a vegetarian and almost a vegan. So uh, those, I'd say, were my two sort of youthful influences. And although I stopped eating red meat and poultry in my teens, I have to confess that, uh, you know, I, I... I ate fish for a really long time, which you know I'm kind of embarrassed about now and regret. But um, you know I was never a complete vegetarian, let alone vegan, until about 15 years ago. And I just, you know, as I continued to think about it and also get uh, more involved with it as it became a political issue um, in in a more prominent way than it had been, uh, say, in the 70s or 80s, then I I made that final step. Mm. Well, it sounds like in, uh, when you first began the journey, you were kind of alone. There wasn't there wasn't really a uh, a social consciousness around this, except in a very you know small hippie enclave. Right. Yeah, I didn't come from any. Uh, well, you know, I mean, in the early seventies, in terms of college campuses, uh, there were, uh, I think the beginnings of kind of a vegetarian slash vegan movement. I mean, I actually, uh, one year was, I was president of the student government uh, at City College in New York, and a, ve- a new vegan startup group came, uh, you know, asking for funding from the student senate. And even though I'd had the experiences I just mentioned and, and also, um, you know, was, was thinking about being a vegan, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get uh, any support at all. Uh, for actually uh, funding this group from a uh, fairly progressive, you know, it was an anti-war uh, kind of left-leaning coalition that was running the student government, but you know, it didn't get anywhere with um, with the funding request. But there was in that time period uh, more and more groups, I think, appearing, which is still the case now. Uh, you know, I just spoke at the end of March um, before a group called the Ivy uh, Vegan Society, which is the various vegetarian vegan groups at the eight Ivy League schools, which had their conference this year at uh, Harvard University at the end of March, and that that's been growing. I understand there might have been something like sixty people at uh, the first one four or five years ago, and, and there were several hundred in Cambridge. So, I mean, I think uh, in general we have a demographic shift in the right direction now. Mm-hmm. So, so you went to a uh, sort of a liberal progressive college you adopted the identity of someone at sort of the the touchy feely fringe i'll say of you know around animal rights and animal welfare mm-hmm. and at the same time you were really into finance did did that did that feel like a contradiction or or a you know a sort of a no it came tension? you know yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it just came naturally to me. It was totally from my family environment, uh, not not the vegetarianism, uh, because it wasn't really a concern. I think that either one of my parents had ever had, but but uh, definitely these two interests, I got uh, strong support from my parents for. And you know, it's sort of um, like I guess being brought up in a religion, maybe uh, a religion you have a positive experience with, and, and in point of fact, one of those um, two orientations is a religion in America. Although I would prefer <laughs> with the animals, but I don't think the stock market is missing that many aspects of religion in this culture. So you know, I, I just fit right naturally in, into it, and and many people, you know, in reading that bio, think that maybe I'm some sort of Renaissance man, but actually. Uh, I'm very narrow. I mean, these are like the only two interests I've ever had for the most part. Uh, but I guess our society, on the other hand, is getting so um, 
conformist in some ways, other than on the fringes, that, that to have more than one interest uh, may, may startle people, uh, especially if it's, you know, I mean, we do have this notion of specialization in careers, which I think is not only very limiting, but also uh, is not the best thing for results since it gives you, you know, less than a full perspective in terms of whatever decisions you might make. But, you know, for me, um, it's just been sort of who I am, like speaking English or something. Mm. Now, a lot of the recent stuff I've read about sort of managing money and picking investment strategies seems to suggest that there's, there's a lot more luck than skill. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering like what, what qualities, you know, do you have and do you see in people that makes them good at that sort of thing? Is it just sort of the way? Yeah, that's a great the point. Research? Yeah. I, I, I don't actually have anything in form to tell you about, you know, uh, what element skill or luck might play in, in, uh, in stock picking. I mean, there are people who I respect greatly, like John Bogle, uh, the CEO of Vanguard, who believes that that skill in picking stock doesn't exist. Uh, as a layperson, I find that really hard to believe because skill does seem to exist in any human endeavor, but I want to hasten to point out that it's not what I do. Um, and it's not what most hedge funds do, broadly speaking, because um, there's a whole world of mutual funds out there where people pick stocks and try to have them go up over a long period of time. And, you know, when the market's going up uh, generally since 1932 or 33, actually, you know, it's pretty easy to look good doing that. There's an expression uh, called uh, bull market genius, which I think goes for a lot of the outcomes with stock picking. Uh, we don't look for stocks that are really going up or down. We look for stocks that are in a narrow trading range over many years so that we can buy them low and then sell them a few days later or a few years later when they go up a few points. And those stocks are kind of... Um, there's another stock market expression that explains that strategy, and that is the trend is your friend. So we really look for stocks that have done this, say, 19 of the last 20 years, and uh, roll the dice that they'll do it in the uh, 21st or the 22nd year. And honestly, uh, although in flipping a coin, your chances are the same each time you flip it of heads to tails, it's not really true with the behavior of stocks. You know, They do tend to continue to do what they've been doing, so, um, and I'll, I'll give an even uh, simpler example of that. Let's say your goal is to be a low-risk uh, hedge fund manager. Well, okay, maybe there are people who are better at managing risk than others, but if you want to um, take half of the money that you've been given to manage and keep it in the bank or under the mattress, you're going to lower your risk by 50% even if you came in last in the United States on your math SATs, you know, it's a question of psychology, really, in my opinion, more than anything else as far as managing investments in the stock market, and that is not to be greedy. And we do lower risk by trying to keep a large cash position. And again, um, there's no real great insight in that other than, you know, with the remaining 50%, you have to try to make money so that the investors do not, uh, you know, lose uh, precipitously. But basically... If half of the money is in the bank, it's not going to be uh, victimized by the stock market crash. So, um, you know, we try. I mean, I learned all this over many years, and I learned it uh, really initially in the um, 
uh, severe bear market of 1973-74, which was the bear market tied to um, Nixon's impeachment and also um, to um, uh, problems with the stability of the U.S. dollar uh, and inflation, uh, where the stock market went down 80% actually over two years. It's the last real bear market we've had by comparison that the 08 you know, uh, crash recovered relatively quickly. And I learned from that, you know, as uh, if you don't own a stock, it, it can't go down. So that's, I mean, it seems like a very organic, non sort of chest thumping way to look at it. So if I understand it correctly, you look at these stocks that kind of look like, um, like ripples on a pond that are just going mm-hmm. up and down within a range and you know that range over 20 years. And so you buy when, when the, the, the wave is low and then you sell when the wave is high. It almost, it almost, it seems like not a very macho way to do it. Well, how are you description of that? very poetic actually. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I'm going to remember that the next time I write a poem. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I don't really think of it in terms of macho. Um, this was this would have been 1966, and I was starting to follow the actual stock market after having lived with my father's stories for quite a few years, which included people jumping off the of ledges. And I looked at uh, what was then, I think, the second largest company in the country, uh, which is now ExxonMobil, but was a ticker symbol uh, SO, as in the old Esso gas stations, which were Standard Oil of New Jersey. And uh, anyone who's sufficiently interested can look this up. But in that year, it, it traded between 67 and 72, up and down, up and down. And I watched it for a year. And then uh, I convinced uh, my mother to go down to the um, Merrill Lynch office in the Time Life building because I couldn't open up an account myself. And I said to the guy, um, you know, all I really want to do here is buy it at 67 and sell it at 71. And he kind of said to me, well, we'll certainly make commissions that way, so go right ahead. And I did, and I actually made a lot of money on that stock when I was in college. And I continued to do that. Now, you do have to adjust. I mean, I'm, I'm giving a very, you know, basic, simple picture here. The range can change. Uh, but the idea that you know, really most of the stock market activity in a given year is typically happens on five or six days and all the other trading days, the market's going nowhere is actually quite mathematically accurate. So if you can make money on these, um, you know, sort of back and forth uh, wave-like movements as you um, very uh, aesthetically describe them, I mean, you can, you know, um, over time, you know, really have a very strong performance. Yeah, and the the reason that fascinates me, you know, this is not a podcast about finance, and uh, you know, I never, you know, I never really talk about this stuff with anyone. But it, it feels like there is something naturalistic about the way you do it, which is kind of at odds with the way I think about at least the the culture of Wall Street that's been presented to me through you know people I know right. from having having grown mm-hmm. up in North North Jersey and from like you know the Big mm-hmm. Short and the and the movies is, is mm-hmm. this sort of you know, it's, to me, it ties in with this idea of animals and your interest in in humane treatment. That we're not trying to like overcome nature and math, but we're trying to live within it, within its means and our own. Mm-hmm. It's a great point. I mean, there are many, many theories actually uh, about the stock market that have been, written, you know, um, that various people have come up with. And, 
And I'll just mention two of the more uh, outlying ones. Uh, there's a theory that the stock market actually is itself a personality and a mind, that it's sort of equivalent to an extraterrestrial organism and may even be an alien in <coughs> intelligence. Um, and that's because, um, you know, basically the stock market often does things in its performance that seem to be at variance with, um, you know, uh, what seem to be a more rational approach. And we, we're living in the middle of one of those examples right now in the so-called uh, Trump market because it would seem to many people, including many people who work on Wall Street, that there, uh, and I'll put this as nicely as I can, that, that there would at least be a risk with an inexperienced new president, if you don't want to use stronger language, in terms of instability. <laughs> and the market, the market hates instability, it hates risk, and it hates war. Um, that's come, coming as a surprise to some people who might associate, you know, capitalism with arms profit and all that. But the record is that the stock market closed for World War One for six months because of the total um, sort of breakdown in morale. And the stock market uh, had its worst period since the crash of 1929 during the Vietnam War. Um, it hates war. I'm not saying it hates war for moral reasons. It hates war because of the greater uncertainty that war brings in terms of predicting economic performance. Um, so to trade in a straight line up since November 8th, uh, 2016, without taking into account uh, what I would say, you know, was pretty obviously an increased risk of some sort of uh, surprises happening, um, seems very strange and irrational. In fact, it is. Uh, but I don't believe the stock market's rational. I, I, I don't believe, I'll rush to, rush to add, I don't believe the stock market's an alien organism. Uh, I think it's a marketplace where uh, people buy and sell in the same way they do, like in a bazaar in Morocco, only a much larger number of people. And there's no rhyme or reason in engaging the, um, you know, billions of decisions that go every hour into stocks going up and down. Um, I think in this country what you're referring to also is that we have very much a, um, you know, an investor culture which uh, began really in the 1950s and um, you know, uh, famously expressed in uh, From Wall Street to Main Street, uh, which was the book that you know, really outlined the idea that investing could be for the masses uh, in the late 1930s. Uh, and it's, it's incredible how pervasive it is. And yet at the same time, uh, the public has a huge degree of financial illiteracy. Um, only... A tiny number of people in the United States actually even know what a hedge fund is, even though they have, uh, as an industry, um, come to dominate the daily trading in the stock market and have almost $4 trillion under management. And, in fact, produced um, most of the money in the last three presidential elections and actually produced one of the candidates, which was Mitt Romney, who had spent his um, really most of his career as a private equity uh, fund manager, private equity and hedge fund are the same uh, organization under the same law. The only difference is that hedge funds are uh, dealing with public uh, wealth and private equity deal with private wealth, like companies that aren't traded. Uh-huh. And, you know, So, I mean, yeah, I just, yeah, just, I just ahead. want to emphasize this point that nobody, I mean, I, I did an interview in 2009 with a guy who's a great writer and, um, had been president of the American Society of Business Journalists uh, or Business Columnists, and he didn't know what a hedge fund was. 
Yeah, I've got to admit, I, I have a pretty uh, fuzzy understanding right. of it. The, you know, ba- basically, it's a place that won't take my money because I'm not rich enough. It's kind of it's kind of the limit of my of my uh, understanding. Right. Well, um, you know, the truth is that actually, uh, in the '99 member partnership, um, which is the main form of hedge fund in the United States, actually up to 30 uh, slots go to non-accredited investors who don't have to have any money. Oh, okay. um, they only the only require so uh, if you're a non-accredited investor, uh, which uh, even most people. Uh, you know, who work on Wall Street and are familiar with this, um, you fill out a non-accredited form which asks if you um, get most of your financial information from A, uh, the radio, uh, B, books, and C, newspapers. So uh, you can tell by that that the form has been changed since 1940 when hedge funds were created uh, under the Investment Company Act. And, and so um, now it has this accredited investor concept, um, but I have to tell you that, I mean, almost nobody's ever heard of the non-accredited investor. And in fact, I didn't hear it until uh, the lawyers were drawing up the uh, documents for my own fund. Hmm. So wh- one, of, one of my prejudices about, say, Wall Street as a, a lever and a representative of capitalism is that capitalism is basically a machine designed to exploit the natural world and turn it into someone's balance sheet and knowing that you are using the machinery of wall street now to, uh, to represent, you know, against animal, uh, cruelty and, and animal exploitation is, you know, first of all, is, is there accuracy to, to that perception and kind of how, how do you, you know, how do you use the, what do they call it? You know, use the owner's tools to te- tear down the owner's house. Yeah, it's a really interesting. I mean, I, I, the point of view, I think, historically, I would fundamentally agree with. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much totally agree with it, actually. I do think that's what, ha- you know, what happened in the United States with the culture that's been created by the 1940 Investment Company Act. And, and let me just, before I go more directly to the question, let, let me make a small point here. Um, Prior to 1940, most of the business taxes in America and most of the assets were owned by corporations uh, who pay income tax or pay tax on their business income. And still today, even in the political discussion, most of the um, sort of concentration is on the corporate tax rate. But the truth is that the 1940 Investment Company Act transferred um, a lot of the actual business wealth in the country to the partnership structure, which is what hedge funds and um, private equity funds are, so that the uh, majority of assets, depending on how you calculate it, are now in the hands of partnerships, almost all of them in the state of Delaware, that um, get this, don't pay any tax at all. Partnerships in the United States do not pay tax. They distribute their profits to uh, the... um, partners who, uh, first of all, that's dividing it up by 100, so that if you made $100 million as a partnership, that's not taxed. It's a million dollars individually that's taxed by all the uh, partners receiving the benefits, who often can shelter it entirely. So this is one of the biggest changes in taxation. I think it might be the biggest. Well, other than going from tariffs in the late 19th century to the uh, so-called progressive income tax. And and I'm, I'm mentioning this 
in relation to your question, because what's happened in the last three quarters of a century is that the business structure of the U.S. has become uh, so chaotic, so immune from taxes, and so uh, free of regulation that it has allowed an opportunity for progressives to get in the game and um, to really reverse the traditional orientation of capitalism towards amoral uh, uh, creation of profit regardless of the consequences. And, and I will give you just an example that is totally known to the public, and it's been on the front page of the New York Times innumerable times, and that is that in the last three congressional, the last four congressional cycles, the largest individual donors to... Um, political parties in the United States have not, it's not the Koch brothers. Uh, it's a hedge fund manager in, in the area called Tom Starr, who is unfortunately not great on animals, although he's a strong environmentalist. And uh, before him, the even more famous George Soros. So the leading sort of 1% contributors in the country right now to politics are actually not on the right, they're on the left. But I would contend that this reality comes out of a far more profound um, change in the American economy, and um, why do I say with confidence that nobody knows? Well, first of all, nobody knows about it. Secondly, the 1940 Investment Company Act, which created hedge funds and private equity funds, mandates secrecy. Um, there was no clearinghouse for information. Until 2013, there was no ability to advertise. It's the most secret accumulation of wealth probably in the history of the world, and it's been adopted now I mean, every country in the world has a, quote, hedge fund uh, culture now, all of which is mimicking the United States. And so it's within that, um, you know, uh, narrative that I gradually began to see um, between about 1999 and 2008 that something really dramatic could be done for animals through capitalism. If you want to call this kind of hedge fund management capitalism, I mean, one of our aims is to take down uh, industrial farming, you know, uh, the use of, uh, of uh, well, basically the use of the stock market to finance the mass slaughter of animals. And that's an example of the complete evil of, of capitalism. But in the, in the um, stock market, as it's developed over, over the uh, several centuries, really, since the uh, late 1600s, you can make money that way. It's called selling short. And, uh, I mean, if you read or saw The Big Short, you're familiar with that. And it actually is a very, very um, effective method to um, protest companies that are doing evil things. And it's by law secret. So, you know, I mean, I'm doing I, – I have done – I have not done actually anything. Uh, I have done some uh, interviews, you know, in general over the years, um, you know, like the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg News and so on, but they were just sort of, um, you know, sort of out of my literary interests or because there was a particular reporter that I knew. But um, there are, uh, you know, huge potential for progressive managers to step in and do stuff that is socially conscious. And I would also point out that um, environmental companies that do things ranging from you know, creating uh, greener products to cleaning up the environment are also a trillion-dollar industry. Now, they may not be as big as the car makers yet, but they're just as capitalistic. I mean, a company that essentially is trying to, um, you know, create a meat alternative, uh, you know, like Beyond Meat, is just as much a capitalist enterprise as um, Tyson Foods. So I think you have this vast... Um, 
you know, really it's the advent of chaos, I guess, if you look at traditional, uh, you know, traditional finance. Uh, but the dramatic change in the corporate slash partnership structure of America, I'm just amazed that nobody talks about it. I mean, it didn't come up really in, um, in uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign, even though, and I'm not saying this could have been a campaign issue, but, you know, Hillary Clinton's um, daughter and son-in-law met at a hedge fund. I mean, her son-in-law is a hedge fund manager. I, I don't believe that, that Bernie Sanders does not know that hedge funds are dodging far more in taxes than corporations are. But I just think that, you know, um, the public is so ignorant of the issue that he didn't think he could get anywhere with it. But it's really, um, yeah, I mean, when he talked about we were in danger of be- becoming an oligarchy, I would, you know, my mouth would drop because we've been an oligarchy really since the 1950s. So I'm... Um... I'm tempted to let this go and let my readers think that I understand more than I do, but uh, my <laughs> listeners. But I'm uh, I still I still don't see the connection between this 1940 Private Investment Act and the uh, the rise of the hedge funds and the opportunity to kind of undermine the system through through progressive uh, investments and shorting evil companies. Can you right? Can you, can, yeah, can so you do like that, a, a remedial for me? Yeah. So, so you probably learned in school, as I did, that in the 1930s, in, in the wake of the crash, that there were various regulations, like the SEC was created, and that there were um, you know, uh, a lot of restrictions on things like margin and selling short and all of this. But uh, the stock market didn't go anywhere in the 1930s. It didn't really rise uh, for that entire decade. And on the eve of World War II, Congress passed legislation, which was essentially saying, okay, we give up. Let the really rich come back to the stock market with no regulation at all, no tax on their partnerships, no restrictions on what they do, and no supervision by the SEC. So in 1940, this law was passed. The term hedge fund was coined in 1947 uh, by a writer for Business Week magazine, um, and, and that was on the basis that you could sell short as well as uh, buy long. Okay. So can you Gradually, can you explain sell sell short just briefly? Right. So selling short is, is sell, right. Selling short is trying to make money on a stock price going down. So basically, you borrow the stock uh, to sell it from a broker, and then when it goes down. If it goes down, you buy it back, and you make the difference between the higher sale price and the lower price you bought it at. It's actually, and I do recommend uh, The Big Short, uh, both film and book. It's really a great you know, introduction of this whole area to, um, to the general public. Uh, it's actually uh, more than 10% of the activity in the financial markets every day is selling short. And... Um, so that gives you several options. Well, to, just to summarize uh, on, on, on the point you're bringing up, when you take away regulation, when you take away publicity, when trillions of dollars migrates into this asset class, uh, and nobody knows about it, I mean, in terms of the general political culture, and in fact, the asset class is financing now uh, the majority of presidential candidacies in terms of money, you know, when you accumulate that kind of power, 
um, it opens it up to a much broader political spectrum. And um, New York Magazine did a study, uh, was on the front page of New York Magazine in 2011, where they said that hedge fund managers were the most progressive element in the stock market. And in fact, that 35% of them were Democrats as opposed to 19% of investment bankers and less than 10% of people working in finance in general. Um, and I won't go into the psychological or cultural reasons for that, but from my experience, it's, it's basically uh, probably true. But when you give them all these tools that did not exist previously and they feel that there's, uh, whether it's a sector of uh, the stock market that is polluting the economy, uh, excuse me, polluting the atmosphere or, or that's harming animals or a long list of things. It gives them tools to act against them, which um, did not previously exist. And also it gives them uh, a degree of political influence that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, I mean, uh, just to return to the example of Tom Steyer, I mean, this is a guy who's managing, uh, you know, $20 billion or whatever it is, whose who's main concern is keeping the country, you know, the water clean and the air clean, and is willing to support candidates who are willing to do that. Um, but he got that money, you know, out of being a hedge fund manager uh, in a way that was not really possible prior to 1940. I mean, basically, of course, you have the industrial barons like Carnegie and Rockefeller, but for the most part, you know, it wasn't like any old person could set themselves up with a hedge fund and earn that kind of money uh, with, uh, and I don't think I mentioned another interesting fact, and that is that um, other than maybe, um, well, I, I won't even make a metaphor out of it, there are absolutely no legal requirements in the United States to start a hedge fund. Hmm. You can start a hedge fund on death row. I mean, uh, if you're, if you're, you can start a hedge fund if you're illiterate. I don't think there's any, I was going to make a comparison to the requirements to uh, being president, which are also non-existent. But I think the, justifica the justification for president, is, which, which you know, may be under some question right now, is, well, the people vote, so they'll exclude someone on death row or who is illiterate. Yeah. Or we would, that, was the, that was the thinking. Uh, but nobody knows. Hedge funds are started in total secrecy and privacy, so nobody... Um, you know, really, nobody yeah. knows. So, so this is a real um, mind shift for me because you know, having grown up in the world of, say, plant-based nutrition, mm -hmm. where where the the um, inequalities um, around funding are very very clear, where you'll see, you know, the uh, USDA or the Department of Health and Human Services will come out with a, you know, a three million dollar eat your veggies campaign over five years. And meantime, like one junk food company like M&M Mars or Cadbury Schweppes will spend that much in a day. Right. Right. To, to pro and, and so, so this, this huge imbalance exists in my mind around people with money promoting, you know, planet dis destroying, health destroying profit motive. And you're saying that there's this entire giant massive black hole of the economy that nobody sees in which in some cases the reverse is true that the good guys are spending the money yes that's exactly what i'm saying i mean basically um i don't know i don't know about 
clearest way to to bring, well let me let me let me say this about how that money is spent and how that money is reported and that is that uh, all publicly traded corporations in the United States have to issue a quarterly report that has a fair amount of relevant information including who owns the company and where how the company's money is spent and so forth and that's especially true on issues like political contributions and so on and so forth uh, and of course, we have these decisions, you know, Supreme Court decisions and others, which clearly apply to corporations. They clearly apply to um, uh, individuals uh, to the extent that they apply uh, rigorously enough, or that they relax regulation. Uh, they've been, you know, uh, applauded or criticized, but they um, the the fact is not. Uh, communicated clearly enough that in the uh, partnership world there are no regulations to um, do any of these things. I mean, all the financial transactions, the um, you know, political donations, and a long list of other things uh, are not publicly reported. Uh, there are various state laws. I mean, it's a very complicated situation in terms of um, how LLCs, for example, contribute money. Uh, but the truth is that an unregulated and completely secret part of the economy that was legislated into existence um, in 1940 in an effort to um, revive the stock market has uh, run out of the barn door and like basically run off with um, you know uh, what I would consider in some respects uh, some positive aspects for sure. I don't think. Uh, strictly from a philosophical point of view that this is a healthy situation at all. But in terms of the ability of progressive causes, uh, you know, they have really, uh, this situation has put the National Democratic Party on a somewhat level playing field uh, with Republicans. Um, if you look back at the national total spent on presidential campaigns, they don't really start to even out. Um, until uh, hedge funds make their big rise to large assets uh, right at, right around the late 90s. And this information, by the way, comes from the can The candidates have to report on the donations received, but the givers, um, if they're outside of the corporate structure, uh, it's much easier to uh, give anonymously. And, um, yeah, I, now... Um, this right now, in terms of speaking practically about animals and in terms of uh, vegan startups, companies that are either trying to find alternative um, you know, methods of providing uh, meat-like protein without killing animals and also the retail end of that, you know, vegan restaurants and distribution, uh, this is the peak in American history for how much money is being raised every year. Um, and that, I think, is information that can be found online. I mean, uh, it's not really exactly what we do, although I serve on a couple of committees uh, of donors and benefactors that review that kind of, um, um, you know, philanthropic or investment activity, but it is, uh, you know, it's it's sharply rising just in terms of, um, you know, the assets that, um, you know, are now deployed on behalf of animals. Hmm. So is, is there more leverage in kind of using shorts and other uh, tools of the of the stock market to damage evil companies or to spend money and place bets on things like Beyond Meat and vegan restaurant chains? Well, I think um, if you had comparable amounts of assets right now, which you don't, that there probably could be more leverage 
actually in um, using assets or, or just having general discussions with um, what I wouldn't hesitate to call evil evil companies that you know would would um, suggest the advantage to them of cutting back on that kind of business or eliminating it. Uh, there are far more assets available right now to support uh, vegan startups than there are to short sell um, these kinds of companies. Uh, so that makes probably um, the strongest momentum uh, on behalf of of um, you know what uh, normally called angel or venture capital investing. Uh, however, um, you know it depends on really um, also multiple hedge fund managers getting involved with these kinds of trades, which is something we are working on in terms of developing relationships. And um, let me also point out that in selling short these companies, they're not only I mean, they're not really moral trades because you can make a lot of money short-selling most of the major egregious animal stocks in the United States. Their businesses, particularly beef and pork, are under a lot of demographic pressure because meat-eating is really declining about 3% every year um, in the United States. There's, there's, a, there's a bigger challenge with poultry, and uh, fish is not as concentrated, actually, in equity situations where they amount to being publicly traded stocks. Uh, so I wouldn't say poultry is as low risk or as easy to short, uh, but there are health concerns in terms of, uh, in addition to the moral concerns, and there's also the image concern. Um, so there's a very, very strong financial, um, you know, bottom line to picking out a uh, companies on the basis that they do not have good futures and are not growing their profits, with the um, you know the moral uh, aspect of it being um, certainly very compelling, but not necessarily being the specific reason for a particular trade. Mm. So when, when you talk about companies like Beyond Meat and other meat alternatives or vegan restaurants, I still think of those as serving a kind of upper middle class demographic is there is there a way to use hedge funds to to create kind of economic um more more fairness or equality um and i know that you had a hedge fund or or you worked for um to create an organization that um that supported native american owned businesses and i wonder you know, maybe there's right. a, a, a connection there with my question yeah, well, there is, but it's not necessarily a positive one. I mean, we uh, did. I mean, we yes, we we have um, uh, created an organization which um, had trouble getting uh, getting funding. So, um, although we have used the template in some specific investment situations, it's not an independent fund um, sort of running under its own uh, momentum the same way that Green Hills is. Um, let me also just, uh, again, to, to make these definitions clear, hedge funds really invest in publicly traded um, stocks, you know, uh, companies that are traded on an exchange. And so that's a further remove from, um, you know, the type of access to, uh, let's say, neglected or, or groups in society that don't participate in, in the financial system at all um, then private equity is the type of fund that can buy businesses that are not traded. And then for uh, the smaller businesses, which are 
the dominant type of business in the Native American um, communities, then that's really a venture capital or at a smaller amount of assets, angel angel capital. Um, so I worked, uh, you know, for years um, with my partner Dave Castillo, who is um, currently the head of a bank in um, Mesa, Arizona, called uh, Native Capital Access, and it was all about convincing. Um, really, the tribal financial leaders that doing this type of investing ultimately would would work in a way that you know basing the economy on government bank, uh, banks, casino income, etc., um, does not work. And um, you know, it's been a big challenge. I mean, we have um, made some um, inroads with um, some of the tribes in uh, in Arizona, which has um, Arizona is the largest Native American state in the country. It's in fact, uh, I mean, the Navajo have almost 50% of the entire American um, Native American population, and uh, and Arizona, um, one third of the land, which actually has its own time zone. Um, is native tribes, and you know we we certainly have made some progress, but it's um, you know it's kind of uh, the the, du- the double-edged sword is that um, there is no well, there's two. There's no experience with that type of investing, and also that the politics of uh, the tribes, uh, at least in the Southwest, is not as progressive as one might assume from. Um, you know, the historical experience of other um, really uh, oppressed groups. Um, and that has to do just with a lot of historical um, affiliations, associations, actually going back originally to the time of Teddy Roosevelt. And that also, um, you know, uh, is challenging. I mean, it's a very different, um, you know, cultural and, and political climate. But we have set up a tribal-based partnership, and uh, you know we are carrying the message. I can't, I can't say that it's uh, really gotten enough of a toehold to really report on results as far as comparing it with. You're right that I mean, as far as although the vegan, um, you know, message up until now has definitely been centered in the middle class. It does have a health aspect to it, which is uh, dramatically important, I think. Uh, you know, tribal life expectancy in the United States in the early 50s and diabetes is totally rampant, uh, for one example. So ultimately, we, we hope that uh, those tributaries kind of merge, but it hasn't gotten there yet. So when I think about the big picture here, and, you know, before this conversation, I thought that, you know, the big money is, you know, pharmaceutical industry, oil and gas, Monsanto, like they're the ones who always show up contributing to politicians, um, you know, becoming secretaries of state, uh, things like mm-hmm. that. And now I've learned about this giant black hole of money that's, uh, that dwarfs what we see publicly. And now I'm thinking about myself with a, with a limited but existing uh, pool of, of discretionary income and other people I know who make more than me or less than me. Is there anything we can do just as consumers or small time investors or people with 401ks um, or, or IRAs to, to push the things we care about in the world or should we not even bother? No, I totally believe in bothering. And just to jump off one company you mentioned, um, Monsanto, which I would say is, you know, really one of the worst offenders 
over the last three quarters of a century, it might be the single worst company uh, in terms of the environment and um, and treatment of animals directly and indirectly, that um, it is worth the time and effort to look at a company like Monsanto or a company or look for a company like Monsanto or a Tyson or a um, uh, board industries, which is the largest transporter of animals to um, slaughter say, in the United say, States. Wait, say, and say that name. Say that name again. Uh, I kind of cut out for a second. Seaboard, um, Seaboard Industries, which is located in Kansas and which is ticker symbol S as in Sammy, e as in Edward, B as in Boy. Um, uh-huh. It's a terrible company. I mean, when you look at all of them, try to put a, so, a certain percentage of um, their business in more innocuous, um, you know, um, niches. I mean, in the case of Tyson, they actually went so far last fall as to invest $20 million in, uh, in Beyond Meat, um, as opposed to, of course, they, they spend billions of dollars and derive billions of dollars from the slaughter of chickens, but um, they're, they're all seeing this coming. I mean, the biggest fear that they have is actually that vegan and vegetarian um, Percentages in the population grow with education. They are directly are correlated with it, and the company, other countries, getting slowly more educated. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think you have to look at what you own. Uh, as long as you have access to it, whether it's in a brokerage account, or whether it's in a um, you know some type of uh, 401k or IRA, and 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 uh, if there's a financial advisor involved, that they should totally be instructed against. Certain stocks. It's no mystery uh, what these companies are. I mean, you know, uh, I mean the the um, Exxon Mobil and uh, Exxon Mobil um, probably. I mean, we consider the worst company still to be British Petroleum, based on the Gulf spill and also on the culture that led to the Gulf spill. And uh, British Petroleum has spent billions of dollars in advertising about uh, what a green company they are when at the time of the deep water spill it actually occurred because they wanted to get a part that normally cost $90 and they bought it for 10 It's the part, uh, $10, not, you know, 10, I mean $10. It cost them $30 billion, but they saved uh, $80, I believe. And um, this was the type of, well, uh, we had an even more famous example of that recently where um, United Airlines didn't want to pay to send those uh, three employees <laughs> to Louisville at maybe a hundred dollars a ticket on other airlines. So instead, they'll spend twenty billion lost revenue and um, all the other, uh, you know, trademark damage that they're suffering. And this is this is the way decisions get made. If ordinary people who may not be in in the finance world in any way, shape, or form neglect this issue. I mean, they're very easily frightened. And I mean, even better than excluding one of these uh, terrible companies from a stock portfolio is, um, you know, sending an email to the, uh, every company has on their website, their vice president for investor relations, which is a euphemism for trying to jack up the stock price. And they run, they run very fast if they think they're getting, you know, sort of spontaneous and unorganized protests, uh, just a person Deciding to write and communicate, so I'm a really big believer in that type of activism. Of course, there's also shareholder activism where people introduce resolutions, but they never pass because they can never buy enough stock, you know, to get uh, a 50% vote. But on the ground level of how their public relations work, they're actually pretty. I mean, corporate America is, is pretty frightened, 
And by comparison, uh, Hedge Fund America, you know, uh, if you spent a thousand years, you couldn't even find where to send an email for almost all the major hedge funds in the country. So they don't really worry too much about that. And I'm not painting them to be a group of angels by any means. I am just saying that they do have a progressive element, uh, which is larger than that in corporate America, and which, unlike corporate America, can absolutely do whatever they want. And since so, that's a bad, I think it's a bad situation. But if you're going to have that situation, how about some uh, good forces uh, using it as a platform to do some good? Right, as as opposed to we are, we're we're morally opposed to using swords, so we're going to go out in the battlefield with the, uh, you know, with our bare hands, and the other side has swords. Right, right, right. Yes, exactly. So, great, so if I yeah. so if I see really something, in the, I have to say that, yeah. yeah, go ahead. That's a great uh, that you painted a great picture with that. It's totally, it's totally the truth. <laughs> well, thanks. So, if if I see an article in the newspaper or hear something on the radio, so it's better to go to the website and find the email address of the VP of Investor Relations than to just go onto Twitter and or Facebook and just rant. Absolutely. Not if it's something that can go viral, which I don't really know what the parameters are for, for gauging, you know, what I'm not in for yet some of these dramatic, you know, uh, I mean, it's not a surprise why the uh, United Airlines, uh, you know, but I guess those were originally pictures taken with a phone. I mean, you know, you can understand how that goes viral. But United Airlines, I will say that I had a personal experience with United Airlines uh, where they they delayed a flight from uh, San Francisco to Los Angeles by 11 hours, which made it worthless to me and then did not want to uh, give me my money back. But when I wrote to the vice president of investor relations, uh, I got my money back. I got mean, oh. a few, you know, sample of one, and I did. I did. Uh, now, that doctor on the um, you know, uh, flight from uh, Chicago to Louisville had been a stock trader and was yelling that they were going to sell the stock short. I don't know if it would have worked, you know, in terms of the employees he was interacting with, but I will say it might have. Uh, this is from my own experience with United Airlines, which was uh, extremely solicitous of my feelings after I wrote and identified myself as a hedge fund manager. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, I, yeah, I, I would say that, yes, if more people, yeah, that's exactly the place to go because ultimately the company is worth what its stock price is and it doesn't have any other value. I mean, supposedly the value of the planes is in the stock price and what's called the book value of the shares. But if you take the shares down to zero, um, I mean, you can boycott United Airlines and nobody can go on their planes and there's still a United Airlines. But if you take the share price down to zero, there is no longer United Airlines, and they operate on that fear. And, uh, you know, history indicates that they should. Uh-huh. So so even if I'm not a hedge should I say I'm a hedge fund manager in the email? or, or <laughs> you, could, you could probably have more impact, but, I mean, you know, that's, of course, a personal decision. But, I mean, if, uh, if, if I, you, obviously I don't, want to, I don't want to lie, but if I'm not, if I just say right. – I'm a private citizen, and I find this appalling. Right. I mean, also- the actual best language, to, the best language to use, which is not, a, which I think is, is, you know, it may be a little bit challenged, uh, but it's, I think, is to is if, if 
if you do buy stock or you have any connection to the stock market, just to, to use language to the effect that if you were going to buy the stock, this would be a real big reason not to, I think is, you know, a legitimate thing to say and the one that would make the most impact. Because when you identify yourself as an investor, then you're having thousands of times the impact of identifying yourself as a customer. Hundreds mm. of millions of people fly United Airlines every year but the core investor group is probably 20,000 people. Uh-huh. Now, granted, they own a lot of stock, but, you know, that, that, would, get, that would get them an alarm. Uh, you know, that would get them alarmed, um, you know, uh, in a hurry. Right. And I guess a, a sustained campaign would then tell them this isn't just a normal dip that everyone's going to forget about in two days. Exactly. Huh. Yeah, I mean, they're you know, um, I, I think I think you know it's not the only way to do it, but the uh, the power of uh, share owners, which in the United States share ownership is among a very broad swath of the population and involves almost all the companies in the S and P five hundred have significant um, shareholdings by uh, various sorts of public entities, not just individuals but also pension funds that are responsible like to the taxpayers of a particular state and all that. It's totally not utilized and it's actually enormous. I mean if if it were utilized. Um I do believe there unfortunately and, and, and you alluded to this earlier and I mean it's completely understandable that there is sort of a bit of a cultural disconnect between progressive ideals in America and the history of in general the uh, various ways in which business has been anti-progressive, including you know suppression of unions and uh, opposition to giving stronger benefits. Um, although we we see how I think we see how much things have changed, even in the failure to repeal uh, affordable health care in the sort of very formerly kind of uh, right-wing reactionary organizations in the healthcare field who uh, opposed, uh, you know, the Republican bill, um, you know, shows that some of these fault lines are really shifting in terms of, um, you know, what what the history has been. Uh, you know, um, the American, I'm old enough to remember uh, the AMA opposing Medicare in the 1960s, uh, but the AMA strongly supported keeping the government sponsorship of healthcare in this situation and there and there's a whole you know intersect with um the pharmaceutical companies which are also in certain areas of their business uh have horrible ethical practices um but which you know uh would formally have lined up with uh you know private um medical and economic interests were very sensitive to the fact that most of the country did not want to do the repeal. Right. And that can so filter be- into this. Yeah. Yeah. Before I, before I let you go, you know, just one one thought that crops up when you describe, you know, we, we originally started talking about, you know, factory farming and the incredible mm-hmm. cruelty that goes on there. And we kind of ended with this United Airlines flight. And the difference is, of course, that animals don't have, cell phones and so they can't take right. pictures of what happens every day is there is there more incentive than ever because of all this pr and viral stuff for companies to pass things like these ag gag laws so that we we can't look in because there there aren't uh, slaughterhouses with glass walls and there's less and less 
we can do to know the truth or is are things you know getting better there or can we fight against that that kind of obfuscation yeah that's a great point i mean there is an unprecedented push for this um type of impressive legislation beginning with the animal terrorism act about 15 years ago which which actually uh you know is is um well, it has been used uh, to try to intimidate um, various ways of opposing, um, you know, uh, slaughterhouse enterprises. Uh, it is a major uh, problem for the Animal Terrorism Act uh, going up against uh, the hedge fund industry with all of its uh, incredible legal... Pro- I mean, the hedge fund industry really is the most protected business enterprise in the history of the United States, uh, and there is nothing close to it in terms of what it's exempt from. Um, and for that reason, I think that that some of these other, uh, you know, the the opposition, yeah, I mean, trying to criminalize um, in terms of free speech, all kinds of exposure of, of slaughter houses is a very high priority now for the, um, uh, you know. For, for all of the companies that are involved in this industry. And I think, again, the best response, since you can find all the video that you'll ever need, even, you know, in trailer clips from some of the movies that have been made, like uh, The Ghost in Our Machine and To Last Pig, which is coming out soon, is just, a lot of these films show you what you need to know is to try uh, to bring to bear your individual investment and consumer power against companies that participate uh, in their business, in this business, there is no uh, publicly traded corporation in the United States that is entirely 100% the animal slaughter business, and they're all not in it to that percent for the same reason, and that is the growing wave of consciousness. So, um, you know, it may be frustrating from day to day, and of course, in some states, uh, you know, there is some success with this type of legislation. Uh, but I do think that, you know, um, California, which has at least made some efforts on behalf of um, poultry and some of the other states, Michigan also, um, you know, they're major states and um, ultimately raising public awareness. And nobody in America would would, um, would eat these foods if they had um, specific knowledge of where they came from. Hmm. Or maybe I'm too optimistic, but it it certainly would drastically reduce. Uh, when I like to tell people is the tuna boycott in the late 1980s uh, on the issue of catching dolphins in the nets achieved 70 not seven but 70 70 percent in the supermarket, and they saw that net issue in a real to the extent it's been solved, but they at least made a pre- uh, pretense of doing it, you know, within weeks. And you can get that kind of uh, grand uh, dolphins are a, have been selected as a acceptable animal for caring about. Um, but, you know, to me, this is all the culture and the uh, what people are exposed to. So uh, if, if just working with the access that exists now, even without glass walls, I think raising people's consciousness about uh, these issues, uh, which um, I understand from Gene, you're doing a great job on, is is uh, is really going to matter. Right on. Well, you've given me some really useful new insights and, uh, and and marching orders around tools that I was unaware of. So I'm uh-huh. really I'm really grateful to you for your for your insights in this uh, in this hidden world and your willingness to uh, to share them with the rest of us. 
Well, I thank you for the opportunity. I say something now and then, and I did actually write a blog piece um, for Wall Street Journal Reporter in uh, September of 2013 where I laid all this out. But, um, you know, uh, and that, that has to do with the issue of uh, what is the line right now actually between the banks of the United States and the hedge fund industry, which owns it would come as a surprise to many, uh, 18% of the assets of the banking industry in America are owned by hedge funds. An interesting development, it was um, zero before the 2008 crash. So when you look at the Dodd-Frank uh, and all the regulation, yes, they regulated uh, certain aspects of the banking industry. And in, at, at the same time, there were no prohibition against totally unregulated hedge funds buying the banks. So uh, we have had a significant net uh, reduction in regulation for that reason since uh, 2000 and um, you know since 2008. For just one example of how um, the nicest word you could use really is strange. <laughs> the global financial system has really become, but it's not strange if your idea of capitalism is the accumulating the largest amount of money the smallest number of people, which I totally agree with Sanders on, and which doesn't lead to good moral results, and, um, you know, which is why uh, the hedge fund industry um, has been helped by its secrecy to be where it is, because if there's nobody knows what's going on, then nothing's going to change. All right. I just received in the mail today a book that I ordered after reading a couple of reviews. It's called Donut Economics. By mm, Kate Raworth. Yeah. I don't know if you've, uh-huh. if you've seen that. I, I have. I actually read a, re- a review. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, um, there's. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I I won't speak to the book. I haven't read it, but uh, I think any any uh, summary of um, you know sort of the the broader issues and the broader structures of the not only the American economy, but the, the world economy, especially, uh, you know, with the fall of, uh, with the end of the Cold War, or, or at least the fall of, uh, of uh, total state communism in, in these other major countries, uh, you know, it's all been an imitation of um, the American way of doing business. Uh, the United States, also, another point here, the United States, which is 3% of the world's population, has... Uh, well, it's 35% if you looked it up uh, from a UN uh, stat- uh, statistical basis, 35% of the world's uh, GDP. Uh-huh. Uh, and although they don't keep records on this, but anecdotally and in many other ways, I believe the United States actually has, at 3% of the population, really more than half of the wealth in the world. Uh, I don't think it's a secret. Um, but I think you need, you need to look at that number right next to, you know, the 1% and all these other statistics that, that are around here, because the effect of that, uh, maybe in the 19th or early 20th century, it would have been some sort of, you know, global, like, bump for Marxism. But the effect of it right now, and I think we saw this in the presidential election, is not progressive thinking. It's well, how do we get that kind of wealth? And you see this in every country in the world, except for maybe North Korea. So, you know, and that delivery mechanism, and this is all available online, um, is really what's called shadow banking. Uh, 
a term that I think Hillary Clinton did mention once in the Democratic primary uh, process, and Bernie Sanders not at all. And shadow banking um, is essentially hedge funds. Mm -hmm. By the last estimate that I've been able to find was in 2012, uh, the World Economic Forum, which is a Swiss organization, said that the shadow banking system had $67 trillion in it. Uh, by comparison, that's about twice the size of the U.S. stock market, and that's totally unregulated banking money. And that's, you know, we're just trying to carve out a really tiny niche for on behalf of animals here, but the truth is that any niche, when you're talking about that kind of, uh, you know, um, untapped potential, it can really matter. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but I stumbled into this world um, really in the late 90s through my own sort of just stock market interests, and uh, I've been pretty amazed at what I've found. Right. Well, it's a funny word, you know, a funny concept of conspiracy theorist, which is often used by people to to make people who see the truth doubt themselves and make other people doubt them. Mm -hmm. right? It's not a, it's not a, right. it's not a conspiracy if it's systematic and it's happening. Yeah. 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 And, and, and there is absolutely, I mean, uh, again, you know, um, people can always say the earth is flat or whatever, but, uh, there is, um, an enormous, uh, wealth of material online. Actually, if, if you look for just, if you just type in secrecy of hedge funds, I mean, it's, this is all publicly available. And, uh, and there's a very simple explanation for the um, silence on this as sort of a political issue, and that is where are the campaign contributions coming from? And um, by the way, who owns the media outlets? I mean, the New York Times exists right now on a long-term loan from uh, Carlos Slim, who is uh, uh, predominantly a Mexican hedge or although he's been accused of being many other things, and unfortunately, uh, you know, even if you look at the networks, um, there are all there are all kinds of just amazing interconnections. And I don't think that it even has to be. I have had personal experience with this. I mean, um, you know, I had personal experience. Uh, I did write an op-ed piece in uh, 2009 because uh, Henry Paulson was, um, you know, the Treasury Secretary uh, during that crisis um, under Bush had been CEO of Goldman Sachs, and uh, I had a 2005 letter from Henry Paulson. We were Goldman Sachs clients, and um, he basically had written a letter saying that we were not borrowing enough money uh, to really you know, remain with the firm um, in terms of how actively we were trading. It was a routine letter. I mean, there was nothing personal about it, but it did, it did highlight that the idea of using more leverage and borrowing more money was part of Henry Paulson's, um, you know, leadership, Goldman Sachs, who three years later had gone before uh, the Senate Banking Committee and condemned, you know, the banks themselves for uh, loaning too much money. Um, and I, I, I proposed that of the five leading, I would say the five leading newspapers in the country, I did get interest from the L.A. Times. Uh, but at the end of that process, um, they wanted me to change the op-ed so it didn't identify a particular firm. Hmm. And, you know, the whole point of it to me was not only identifying the firm, but that I had this, I had, I had some letter. Uh, so uh, that sort of told me something way back when. And, um, 
you know, but I, I mainly concern I want to emphasize, of course, all this is relevant, really. I can't control that there's no social scrutiny of um, the way uh, the country's organized. Um, it's maybe not a big surprise that a group gets enough money that they can um, exert a lot of influence, but it, it can, it's a real uh, opportunity for, um, uh, you know, exerting uh, influence on behalf of uh, humane treatment of animals. Right. Well, that's uh, yeah. My head is spinning. I need to. I need to spend a lot of time thinking thinking about all the implications of this, you know, for for my own life. But the you know the takeaway is that as a potential investor, I have a lot of power in in writing, and that mm-hmm. you know what what I what I think I see in the world is probably a, a sliver of what's actually going on behind the scenes and. So I'm very I'm very grateful to you for being in in that world and being willing to come out swinging, naming names, and and holding people accountable for for their positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so you, you know, I feel like somebody should say something. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I mean, I, I say that. I mean, many people do much more uh, committed and much more. Uh, risky things than I do, but um, to my knowledge, I'm the only hedge fund manager uh, interested in the issue, uh, the only one who's said anything. Uh, there's only about 7,000 managers in the country, which is like, I think, 12. There's 12 managers for every Congress, and I think it's something like that. And uh, <laughs> You know, you can extend that to maybe there's 12 managers supporting every congressman financially. It's pretty much what the system is now, so... Right. Uh, it can't stay secret forever, but I think it'll take a much bigger crash than 2008 to uh, really develop the storyline for the public. Right. So, if people want to follow your writing, is there a website or a compendium of the articles you write? Yeah, we are actually looking at a website right now. Um, traditionally, hedge funds haven't had them in terms of the secrecy culture. They did pass a law in 2013 legalizing advertising, but what I'm looking at right now uh developing a website that actually uh, would have a lot of Green Hills con- connectivity on it and then um, you know would, would be more broadly themed to animals. But um, other than that, I mean... You know, and I apologize for Google being kind of rudimentary. Uh, but also, people can contact me at um, oceanequity at earthlink.net, and um, I actually read my emails and reply to them uh, yeah. if they're interested in any aspect of the story. Oceanequity at earthlink.net, and I'll also put that in the show notes for today's episode. Okay. Cool. Okay, that's good. Very, Thank that's, you. That's very generous of you. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you'll get some very interested an interesting um, commentary. Mm-hmm. So, Lee Slonimsky, thank you so much. This has been so enlightening, and uh, it, it, uh, it, as I said several times, this has made me think about the worlds of finance and uh, and progressive action in a whole new way. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I'm very glad to hear that, and um, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to talk about it. And uh, you know, let's hope that. Um, you know, uh, one of the um, solutions to uh, the history of capitalism is to change the future with it. Right on. All right. Take care. All right, Howard. Take care. Okay. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. 
For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, which is starting up again in June 2017, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to all of Lee's works at plantyourself.com slash 211. 211 episodes. Woo! If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 210 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not my eh, weekly newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and get the No Recipe Required Cheat Sheet at plantyourself.com slash cheat. And big thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Gina, Jeanette Benham, and Gila Lassert. Uh, well, you heard me take a little break, breath in the middle there anyway, so I guess I was cheating. For your generous support of the podcast, and thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of his music at willridenauer.com. If you would like to support this show and my efforts to bring this message to a wider and wider audience, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes. Here's a couple of reviews that came in beginning in May. Uh, fantastic exclamation point times three says forever a student 1111. He says or she says this is an outstanding podcast in a league of its own. Best host, superb content and delivery with a wealth of information. This has enhanced my human experience. Howard, you are an inspiration. Keep up the good work. Wow, thank you so much, Forever Student 1111. And writing about uh, the PYP 208, Chris Voss, the interview on negotiating with others and ourselves, Willboy51 writes, Howard Jacobson's Plant Yourself podcast is one of my favorites. The primary focus at the beginning was health and nutrition, and it seems to have grown to encompass a variety of living skills. Howard is a great listener, and he is always sincerely into the people he interviews. The interview with Chris Voss is one of his best. I've listened twice and plan to read Voss's book. Well, thank you, Willboy51. I love Chris Voss and his work. And, yeah, I am totally into the people I interview because a couple times I wasn't, and I never published them, and I just just determined, like, why, why would I spend an hour talking to people that I wasn't into, you know, if I didn't absolutely have to. So good – Good noticing there. And yeah, the podcast is definitely growing and changing, and uh, I'm growing and changing. So it's, it's really, really fun. In garden news, things are coming along apace. Yesterday, we planted some rainbow popcorn. So that's going to be fun to see it come up and grow. The beans are doing pretty good. This week, my main backbreaking task is to haul wood chips to all the garden paths and, and make them nice again. And I'm doing that while listening to, first of all, a Rich Roll podcast interview with J.D. Roth, who is the creator of The Biggest Loser and a couple of other weight loss shows on TV. And then J.D. Roth's excellent book, The Big Fat Truth, which I'm listening to on Audible. And I agree with about 90% of it. And I'm finding it very inspiring and getting lots of ideas for how we can make the Big Change program and how I can make my own coaching better. In running news, uh, by the time you hear this, I will have run the Umstead Half Marathon and hopefully will have done well enough 
to begin to recover and turn my attention to Leadville, which is coming up in less than a month. Uh, if you want to follow me on Strava, you can get all the gory details of my workouts and my races. Well, that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>